Welcome to the Breaking Startups Podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. A lot of people want to do positive work for their community, but feel like they have to choose between that and their career. Today's guest, Idaline Bobay, realized that she would have to do both if she wanted to break out of North Philly to bring back the resources they needed in order to rise up. Idaline is a tech activist that uses her computer programming skills as an IT consultant to organize community-driven leaders around the world in efforts addressing the needs of black and brown people. This episode is part of a special series, and Idaline's sister, Rita Henderson, will be on the show later this week. If you find this episode inspiring, make sure you tell your friends and check it out. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10x. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arthur and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so I'm actually really excited about this uh, interview tonight. We're sitting here on a Sunday night. It's about 8 p.m. and it's a week before Christmas, and um, we're uh, looking forward to hearing about this amazing guest. Uh, Ruben, can you please uh, introduce the guest? Yeah, so we're here with Idaline Bobay. She's someone that's very special to all of us. Many of you have heard about her through Route 100 Revolt and Silicon Valley 40 Under 40, but she is a tech activist and IT consultant at ThoughtWorks. Um, you may have also heard about her through her partnership at Black Girls Code, Kino Labs, Yes We Code, and several other organizations. But she is here to share her story about how she broke into startups. So Idaline, thank you for joining us today. Can you take it back and you know tell us where it all started? Well, definitely. First off, thank you all for having me today. I appreciate y'all. So definitely want to take your way back, back into time, back into North Philly, where I grew up in a very poor, extremely poor neighborhood called the Badlands. It's a neighborhood that's in between the Kensington and Fairhill area in North Philadelphia. And I highlight Badlands and I say that with pride because I am who I am because I grew up in one of the poorest zip codes in the United States. And my experiences shaped me to want to change the social conditions that allowed people to grow and to live without food, employment, health care, without education, school books, and, you know, just being criminalized for where they were born, for the zip code that they live. So to me, I take pride in all of that. And having that shaped me, you know, to use regardless what platform I'm given to push that narrative. Can you tell us a little bit more about the school that you went to and, you know, how that was? Yeah, definitely. So I went to Edison Edison High School, which is a school that is considered to be a part of the school-to-prison pipeline. That is, if you're unfamiliar with that term, that is a term that's used where there's more police officers in a building in the school than there are teachers. So, for example, freshman year, we started off 1,200 students and we graduated 278. So we had higher than a 75% dropout rate, which is typical in that type of school. And as you were going through this program and going through everything, can you tell us a little bit more about your family and their role in your upbringing and and what led you to your next phases in your educational journey? Yeah, I would say, you know, regardless of where I grew up, 
why I've always wanted to put social justice in the forefront is because I always had like a curiosity of why were people poor and why did my mom have to work as many hours as she did and still be hungry. I've seen my mom throw up because she was so hungry. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but if you ever experience extreme hunger, it does make you throw up. It does have a huge impact in your life. And, you know, growing up in this type of environment, a lot of children that I grew up with, we opted out of school and we opted into working so that we can help our families in these environments. And that was kind of the road I took. So being in the school, you know, why would I choose to go to school full time day to day when there's not even teachers? And I was arrested in school, in high school twice. And, you know, it's a place where I've seen a lot of friends get locked up and not come out. So I opted to work. So I had a full-time job while in high school. And I would say the way I got out of that was there was this pastor that would go to different schools in North Philly, and they would work really hard to identify people who may not have the grades but had the passion, and they were super determined in their neighborhoods to do something bigger than themselves. And they would help these students out by giving them a second chance to going to college. And this program was called the Philadelphia Partnership Program. And someone like me who didn't have the GPA, I had lower than 2.0 GPA in high school. But if you looked at me through a magnifying glass, you knew that not only did I help support my mom and my family, but I was very active in the community. I was part of a a social justice organization called Youth United for Change, where we ran a lot of public policy to bring in lights around our neighborhoods so that when you're walking to and from school, that you walk in safe conditions. Our high school had um, a lot of students with asthma. And what we found out that because North Philly, you know, is a place of a lot of closed up factories, a lot of abandoned homes and boarded up schools around us, that a lot of students had asthma because they had toxic air that they were, you know, breathing. And the water, we're talking about like Flint, the water that we were drinking in our water fountains did have lead in the water. So we we worked on addressing a lot of these things back in school. So again, although I had less than a 2.0 GPA, you know, my mission and my focus and determination to continue to pull my community and work in my community was so grand that I was granted into this program called the Philadelphia Partnership. And that allowed me to go to college, which I attended Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is a state college. How did your parents feel about you going to college? I mean, originally my mom and my people definitely wasn't having that. And they saw it as kind of as I was letting the family down and like I didn't want to be there because I was a dependent, you know, like a resource that my family depended on that, you know, they saw it like I was abandoning them in the beginning. So it wasn't the greatest transition, but, you know, my mom oftentimes put herself in a lot of uncomfortable scenarios to kind of, like, push me so I would be given resources and be put in, in environments where I could thrive and learn. She, being a single, young, teenage mom herself, knew that she had a daughter that had a lot of curiosity 
So oftentimes she would meet people and she knew she had a curious daughter and she would be like, hey, you know, like, you know, a lot more than I do. Would you mind taking my daughter out like on a Saturday and having her sleep over your house and just showing her things? And although I would hate it at that time, you know, I learned that people didn't live like we did and people had like bigger homes and they had food in their houses and they had cars. And, you know, so it was kind of my mom's turn to be a little uncomfortable and have me go off in a a place that she didn't know. But because she knew that she raised me, she knew I would always be committed and always be very dedicated to where I'm from and to my family. Yeah. So at that point, it sounds like you were uh, facing challenges. A lot of the teenagers nowadays don't even have to consider like providing for family, putting food on the table while you're studying and while you're trying to get good grades or trying to do well in school. When you started thinking about college, what did college mean to you in terms of um, like why even go there? Like why did you want to go to college? Originally, I did not want to go to college, so I'll just put that in the forefront. Um, This pastor, you know, he talked to me for about like two years trying to get me to sign up in this program. And to me, it didn't make any sense because, you know, like my mother said, um, you know, I was, you know, we had a place, we had to work, we had a lot of bills and a huge family to care for. So to me, to take me out of that environment didn't make too much sense. But my pastor was like, you know, you're a great student. If someone just pushes you on the right path, I know you can reach new levels and new opportunities. And, you know, he just kindly kept being on top of me and just, you know, like motivating me to apply. So once I applied, being first to graduate and go beyond middle school in my family, originally I was like super scared of it, but I was breaking barriers and showing my family that there was different opportunities, different environments, different conditions that we could thrive and learn and continue building up one another. And, you know, at this time, very early age, just in my freshman year, not only was I like first to go to college, but my mother seeing all the opportunities that I, that was being placed in my life just by changing my environment gave me full custody of my younger sister. So as an 18-year-old, not only was I living life as an 18-year-old away from home, but also with a 11-year-old child, which was always very interesting to bring my sister to classes and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, something else that your mother told you about when we were in the, or asked you during the pre-chat, we talked a little bit about perceived advantages and disadvantages or just straight out advantages and disadvantages. She asked you what kids had that you didn't have. And can you talk to us a little bit more about um, what that was for you and how your mom got you what you needed in order to, you know, take your school experience to the next level? Yeah, I would say like, you know, disadvantages. I mean, people always say, you know, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you were poor, that's a disadvantage. I would always say, I know I grew up very privileged growing up in a very black, very Latino community because one, I knew my people, I knew my community, I knew who I was. One strong disadvantage is I he- I had a strong uh, speech impediment where I was placed in learning disability courses early on. So my mom was very excited that I did go to college. But in my first year, in my first semester, I did very, I like kind of failed. So in order to stay in school in the Philadelphia Partnership Program, you needed to have a 2.5 GPA. And I had about like a 2.1 GPA. 
So I was falling out of college. And I told my mom I was basically giving up. And she was like, well, why are you giving up? Like, what do other students have that you don't? And just being that I had to work, I didn't have the luxury for to go to a computer lab after classes. And I didn't have books because I didn't have money to purchase the books. So a lot of people did have the resources of just going online and finding texts and different things like that. But I didn't. And to be honest, you know, my first year in college, I had a very low comprehension level. So just talking to my professors. I didn't really understand the vocabulary they would often use. And to me, it sounded sounded like the Charlie Brown's teacher. They were like, mama, 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 mama. And I'm like, what the hell are they saying? So there was a huge comprehension level. And I would often try to talk to teachers and attend numerous uh, study and tutoring circles. But it would often be very discouraged of that I was too far behind. A teacher told me that I should drop out that I needed to go back to middle school and that they could not help me. And to me, that discouraged me a lot. I often cried. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, to me, I belonged in the hood. Everyone belongs somewhere. And to me, it was like, I need to go back home. That's where I belong. And my mom was like, you know what? Like, we're going to give you a laptop. And she crowdfunded. We call crowdfund now. Back then, it was just knocking on the doors and like, yo, my daughter needs a laptop. So... That's exactly what she did, knock on people's doors and tell family and friends that I needed a laptop. And by the beginning of my second semester, I had my own laptop. And with that laptop, it was just like an explosion of wealth of information came. And I was able just to overcome so many things where in my first semester, I didn't even know what a number line was. And by the end of my whole college career, I graduated with a 3.87 in applied statistics Not only did I graduate with that, I also started like a statistics study circle that I was tutoring the entire, not just one, the entire football team. I was tutoring um, numerous people that came out of the Philadelphia Partnership Program and other students that fell behind math and just couldn't understand it. And I quickly became known as the Latina girl who was like bomb at math and could totally help anyone out. And how did you use the laptop to, um, like, what did you do on the laptop? And how was that a turning point for your uh, educational career? So I used the laptop in many different ways. So in some ways, I would just watch videos and I would just put the subtitles on. As I said, I had a speech impediment that I had to go through a lot of speech classes and just kind of learn how to talk. So often I didn't really know how to use vocabulary in sentences on top of not knowing pronunciations and you know, just trying to work on my speech habits other times. So I would use the subtitles just to practice words. And as people would say, my accent was super heavy being from North Philly, having a Puerto Rican mother. I spoke lots of Spanglish and my nickname in college was actually Spanglish. So just kind of working on that so I can better understand how to communicate with people. Other times I would use I would go on the web and it was like a non-judgment place where I could say like, hey, I'm a freshman in college and I don't know what a number line is. And people would be like, what the hell? Like, how do you not know? They were like, "Okay, just join this discussion board and we'll continue talking back and forth. And, you know, I would just use people on the Internet and together we would do like self tutorials and we will work through a lot of assignments. And I went back as one of the teachers said, back to like middle grade math skills and kind of build myself up. So from learning 
middle school math all the way to like applied statistics and just kept working. And it was like something that I, I never knew I was good at because I never had the opportunity and was never given the chance going to a school to prison pipeline. Oftentimes, many students around the United States were not given a chance to even be invested in. So you don't know when you're good at something. But this laptop showed me and allowed me to have that skill set. Got it, got it. And so after you graduated, what did you do after that? I mean, even while in college, I had an internship. I was very thankful that I got an internship working at Super Value, which is the second largest food retailer in the United States. And I did a management and training internship with them. And traditionally, you're supposed to work four years in the stores before you get into a corporate position. But because I was the best intern both years and just showed so much value when it came to data analysis that I got hired to directly work with our CEO of the of our region. So I worked out of the corporate offices out in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and did a lot of competitive analysis for them, a lot of boring spreadsheet stuff that I just I just completely geeked out about. Awesome. Awesome. And that also exposed you to corporate philanthropy and kind of the community driven initiatives that led you to believing that laptop equals empowerment and kind of how you moved to the West Coast. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So while I was before even then, when I was in the East Coast, you know, I, I was mentoring like 30 students. I would go to Kensington High School, to Edison, to like a whole bunch of schools around my neighborhood that's often forgotten. And I would tell people like, you know, my story and kind of be like this token child, like, this can happen to you too. You can graduate, you can have a job, you can work in corporate America and do philanthropy. But I quickly noticed I wasn't changing the conditions of as many students' lives as I wanted to change. And in fact, it was just that. It was charity. I felt like I was passing out band-aids in the community and not really bringing forth social justice type of change. So I looked back to my life and thought like, well, what changed in my life? that made me who I am today. And to that, it was a laptop. So to me, I went online, which at that time was my favorite things to do because I, again, you go and you can ask a search engine a million questions and they're not going to judge you. So I asked, you know, where's the tech industry? And it said it was in Silicon Valley, which at that time I thought it said Silicon Valley. And I wasn't really too sure why breast implants had anything to do with tech. But I was like, all right, bet I'm going to go to Silicon Valley and I'm going to figure out how to bring tech resources to the hood. So at this time, I gave my job a three month notice and I told them that I was going to go on a learning opportunity to break into tech and to bring tools into the hood. And, you know, my company, they gave me a lot of support and they were forever grateful and always said that if I failed and needed to come back, I would always have a home, which felt really good. But I took, you know, my car, I filled it up with a 30 bag of rice, I put a whole bunch of beans, I put more food than clothes, because I told my mom who was completely nervous, that at least I would have food, you know, I was like, at least I'm going to be eating and you know, I won't be hungry. But at this time, you know, I, I was moving in December of 2009, which if you look, the economic crisis happened around 2008. So there was a a great depression that was going on and recession going on in the economy that was hitting Silicon Valley in California and every state very hard. 
But to me, I was very optimistic that I could break into tech and really bring these tools back to the hood. So I got in my car and it took me about 10 days to drive out here. And although I didn't know pretty much anyone in tech, I did know a friend, a guy friend that I was talking to who went to Stanford. And to me, that was just like, you know, I wanted to go to Silicon Valley and he was in Stanford and that was pretty much close. So I moved closer to him and I was living out of my car for the first couple of months, having my clothes in the trunk and having my food in the back seat. And I would spend many times, you know, just crying in my car. Like, did I make the right decision? It was very scary. There was no way going back. It would take me like 50 hours just to drive back home. So what, what did you, uh, like when you came out here, were you, did you start looking for a job right away or were you trying to get like maybe learn new skills or find ways to break into startups? Like what was your uh, action plan once you landed in Silicon Valley? To me, all of the above. So my first thing was to become sustainable. And by doing that was to have a job. So my first job I picked up was not a tech job. It was working at Bloomingdale's because I came in December. They were still hiring for seasonal. So I came here, got like a temp job. Not only did I get a temp job there, but I kind of pimped out my face in the tech startup world where um, a lot of new startups needed a face or a model or someone to kind of like launch their products. And they would use me, give me like like $500, which to me was like, that was money that could help sustain me. And I ended up meeting a friend through a friend that gave me an apartment. It was her apartment. She gave me a room in the apartment and told me basically that she'll put me on tab because she knew I couldn't afford rent. But so long as I would pay back all the rent that I owed her and bills, which by now I did, but I did stay with her for two years when I first moved out here. And I also, again, used the, the internet to go on meetup.com and search within groups that I had interest that I wanted to pick up, whether it was data, whether it was tech, whether it was women, I would go on meetup.com and meet these organizations. And then basically, well, not these organizations, these regular people, and just tell people like my story, what was I doing in California, what I was interested. And I always spend a lot of time as well on University Avenue, which if you're an entrepreneur living in California, especially in Northern California, around Palo Alto, University Avenue is a well-known place where a lot of entrepreneurs and people who, are, who have a lot of ideas kind of just go to talk. And there I got introduced to these very dope people who played a very important role in my life, Tristan and Amori Walker. And they helped me early on, you know, just trying to figure out what was I doing. And then basically I told them exactly this, that I was a hood rat from Philly that moved to Cali. And I was trying to break into tech to bring resources to the hood. And they, they honestly 100% thought I was 100% genuine and that I was dope and I had a lot, a lot of ideas. And that I needed a little bit of coaching. So, you know, when I first moved out here, I had like pretty much bright red hair, big gold hoop earrings, which I still rock gold hoop earrings. So that didn't change. But I also had like these purple bright boots. And although I, I'm, I don't speak loud, but basically my appearance was pretty much loud. So I had a Moy coach me a lot on the do's and don'ts on appearance and Tristan and her as well kind of coached me through like emails, just writing cover letters and writing my ideas and bringing my swag, my personal self to any position that I was applying for. Because they felt that, you know, who I was was dope. 
but I just had to package it differently. So it's not, it wasn't about changing me. It was about changing my presentation style. Totally. So it sounds like you embraced your background, like where you came from, your story, and you're 100% genuine. So what advice would you have for people who may be afraid of their story, might be considering like, what parts of my story should I tell? Like, I don't want to turn certain people off. So kind of how did you approach that? And then what did you end up doing to overcome the soft dialogue? I mean, a lot of people normally say fake it until you make it. But I didn't take that approach. I didn't fake anything. I knew I was self-aware of things that I didn't know. And I was self-aware of things that I wanted to develop. So to me, I just presented myself exactly with who I was and was like, hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm going. And I knew every meeting, every conversation was intentional. So it wasn't about getting over or using someone or if this person has value, I'm going to keep them around. But it was like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. If you're trying to do this as well, like let's build together. If not, no hard feelings, like mad love to you, but I'm going to continue moving and grooving. And people knew that about me. There was no hard feelings if I couldn't put you on my schedule. But I was working, not only was I working on pimping my face, is what I call my modeling career, but working in Bloomingdale's. I mean, I worked at CVS. I worked at this company called iCharts, which stood for Interactive Charts. And at the time that I was working at, inter- at iCharts, you know, Tristan shared with me that, you know, having a brand in Silicon Valley definitely helps. So if I could go to school and do my MBA and talk to people as a student, it would be more helpful than talking to them as someone who is desperate looking for a job. So not only, again, do you have the advice of, you know, not having to fake it until you make it, just having your authentic self, like be present and tell people exactly what you want to do. But I would say, again, what Tristan said was, Having some type of branding did help get me through the door and coming off as a student and not as someone who is desperate was also helpful. I've always been a child that was always very curious. So just coming to the table as someone who had a lot of ideas and questions always definitely helped me. I love the point that you made about telling your story because we usually say that if you have a compelling story, people will go out of their way to help you. And it sounds like having mentorship helped you shape that brand and position yourself to get noticed and for people to actually want to go out and help you. Just a question uh, on a different topic. When you were doing this, what was your mom and like, what was, what was your sisters? What were they thinking uh, about your move to the West Coast? Were they supportive at that point in time? I mean, my mom, like I said, she was very scared to have her daughter that she knew was so curious go and drive to a coast that we have no family here. We don't know anyone here. So a lot of people always say, you know, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. Well, bro, I ain't know nobody out here. My mom didn't have anyone to even call and check in to be like, hey, can you look after my daughter? So a lot to both her and me, we had to rely on faith and rely on on God. And we actually would call each other and pray a lot. And I mean, my family was still struggling back home. So any funds that I did receive, not only was I using that to sustain myself, but I was also sending money back home to help my family out still. Got it. Got it. And so it sounds like relationships who you know, branding yourself was really important. And the advice that Tristan gave you about being a student really resonated with you. So can you tell us a little bit more about the school you chose, why you chose that school? 
what your focus was during your MBA and how you got that first job at a startup called iCharts? Yeah, so I applied to Mills College. It's in Oakland, California. It's an all-women school. And to me, that school kind of stuck out being that it was all women. It was a lot of women of color. The school had 60% women of color, which, you know, just I never went to a place where there was that many women. Being in applied statistics, I was the only woman in the course and often the only black or the only Latina in the classroom. So to me, having that just, you know, made me feel really centered. The school also focused on social justice, which to me, I've always had a passion and heart for. So in my MBA, I studied human-centered design. And because the school also had computer science, I took up some computer science courses. Now, when I was in the school, you know, Tristan, who, again, is a dear friend and helped me a lot early in my days, said that he could help me out with an internship if I wanted. And he actually be on and like tweeted like, hey, I have a dope friend who needs an internship. Is there any opportunities out there? And about like 80 people responded to him. So I could have pretty much worked anywhere in Silicon Valley. But to me, it was really important that I made that opportunity for myself. So I met with people that I wanted to meet with that that did not come from my Tristan Connect, that came from like my own connect and my own grind and my own hustle. Because people from the hood, we know how to hustle. And that basically is the same thing as entrepreneurship. So to me, it's like, I don't need anyone helping me with this because I know exactly how to do this. So I met with one of the VPs at iCharts. Again, that stands for Interactive Charts. And with my background in data analysis, I started working as an intern there and within three months got hired full time while I was a college student to continue with research analysis and created charts and um, working on their marketing as well. How'd you meet the VP at iCharts? I was at a cafe talking to people. And this guy was talking about the company he worked at, which was iCharts. And they recently got $3 million in funds. And they were looking to hire people, um, interns and people just to help them grow. So I pitched them my story and my background. And they gave me an offer there on the spot. Awesome. Awesome. And um, it sounds like, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-interview. While you were at iCharts, uh, you were still consistent with your dedication to the community. Um, and you created a program for kids that went back to the laptop empowerment thing that led you to another cafe. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, my first year of, of college, well, my first year in my master's program, while studying computer science, to me, my whole mission of coming to the West Coast was to bring a laptop, to bring tech resources to the hood. So I created this pilot program where you know, if you gave a laptop to every child and trained them on how to use this laptop, how to do research, how to build and create, then that child would be empowered to do whatever they could. And I pitched this at a couple of places and someone in the crowd, there was this guy who, who was an Indian guy, said he had a school in Tamil Nadu in South India that worked with the lowest caste system. And it was a very like radical school because in India, you do have caste systems and based on the caste you were born in, you're given different education opportunities. So he provided high quality education to people from the lowest caste system. He was like, you know, your program sounds like an excellent program to pilot at our school. We'll allow you to come to our school and help you, you know, fly and pay for your flight. 
but if you would bring the resources. So with my jobs in CVS, my pimping my face career, my iCharts internship, and doing like some crowdfunding where I told people if they can give me some laptops, we brought over about like 15 laptops. I was able to purchase computers out there, a just a whole bunch of like power sources out there to start a computer program out in Tamunadu. And once I did that pilot program, I was super excited, came back to the States and again, walked past a cafe, which if you're in Silicon Valley or in the Bay Area, cafes is basically where to be if you're trying to connect with other entrepreneurs. So I was walking past this cafe and this is before Impact Hub Oakland was around. But Ashara and Kandayo gave Kimberly Bryant, who is the founder of Black Girls Code, the platform to talk about her pilot program. So during that summer, she just piloted a program called Black Girls Code, and she had 15 students where they were Black and Latina. She was teaching them computer programming. So once I seen that, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly the type of program that I'm interested in piloting. And, you know, I told her my results and what I did in, in Tamunadu, and I shared with her that I wanted to work with her on this goal. And she said that she didn't have any money. But if I, you know, was passionate about the mission that she needed a partner who can continue to build out Black Girls Code. So that's when my journey with Black Girls Code came about. And we quickly took Black Girls Code from 15 students to 2,000 students through crowdfunding programs that I launched, campaigns that I launched that allowed us to raise The first time around, we raised $25,000. The second time around, we raised over $100,000 to teach young girls of color in the U.S. computer programming. Yeah, and during the pre-chat, you told us that one of the things that you also wanted to do was change the perception of uh, how people view, like, girls, how they they view black girls who might be interested in tech. And you mentioned something about just search terms on Google. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so very early on, I mean, to think a single mother, Kimberly Bryant is a single mother who's raising this amazing daughter, her daughter Kai, who is extremely talented. And she's working in tech and she has this nonprofit that she launched and she's working her ass off. And then you have this broke student who's in doing her grad. And together we're both struggling trying to build Black Girls Code. And it was a really, it was really hard to get started in the beginning. This is like in the beginning. I mean, now there's like tons of tech education courses, but back in this time, it was just pretty much Black Girls Code was paving a way when it came to tech education. And a lot of people were like, you know, this is a beautiful concept. We love this concept, but you would have to change Black out of Black Girls Code if you want us to fund you. And that was something that we were not willing to change. So Kimberly Bryant would look at me and I would be like, no, having black is the elephant in the room. It's changing perceptions before if you would go on Google and do any search engine, go on to any search engine and type black girls, you would find black girls ugly or black girls nasty or something like just completely demeaning to black girls. But right now, if you go to your laptop and search black girls, black girls cold is either the first or the second thing that comes up. So it's completely changing the view of not only how people see black girls, of how we see ourselves and the type of narrative that we're giving in the world. So it's something that I had a great privilege and a great honor being a part of building. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit more about the results of Black Girls Code and what you guys built it to? Yeah. I mean, right now, Black Girls Code is well known 
I feel like it's a well-known household name. Not only can you find it on Empower being shouted out, but recently it's also being shouted and partnered with the new movie, Hidden Figures, that's coming out to movies everywhere. I mean, it's a a great company. It's a great name. Kimberly Bryant has done so much. Oprah has shouted us out. We've been on the Black Girls Rock stage. Like, it's just been amazing back-to-back, year after year. Awesome, yeah. So two years, 3,000 students. You did something amazing there. And, you know, what led you to your next steps in your tech-slash-social justice journey? Yeah, so after Black Girls Code, I started working with Kino Labs, who's ran by Kalima Prep Force, and Yes We Code, who was founded by Van Jones. And together, we... You know, we started building social justice hackathons and social justice kind of think tanks with tech in the forefront. So I basically worked on these teams early on as part of like the operations and community building and really quickly realizing that although, you know, there's this thing where you do need to create spaces where people who traditionally grew up as the only black person can be a part of, but There's this other side of the coin where you have a whole bunch of people of color who've never even participated in tech. So that was more of the less the direction that I wanted to grow in is working with these more marginalized, discriminated against communities who were dispossessed, who were extremely poor and didn't have any access to tech, but who were really committed to changing the world. And having them see and figure out the tools that they need, the 21st century tools that they need to create something. So very early on, I was working with Van Jones and Kalima with this, but wanted to take it a bit further into the social justice realm, which kind of takes me with the work that I'm doing now, which is not only educating people in tech, but also in political economy. Because right now, if you don't know the economics of our society, of how our society is structured, you don't know how to connect the dots. And, you know, you can be um, you need to get to the root in order to change, in order to change and bring true transformation. So a lot of the programs that I'm doing now in these provides political education as well as tech education. Awesome. Awesome. And so. While you were doing all these things and supporting other people and bringing resources to other people, you were also thinking about ways that you could also provide resources for yourself to sustain yourself and also um, continue the work that you were doing, which led you back to your efforts on breaking into tech. And you, you know, this is part two in your, you know, breaking into tech journey. So can you tell us a little bit more about, despite having 12 years of experience, you know, what your process was and, and how that went? I mean. My breaking into tech part two definitely hit me in different ways. So part one was just getting my foot through the door, allowing the world and the tech scene to know who I was. But now that I had the the degree to back me up, um, working in social justice places, you know, I wasn't allowed. I wasn't sustaining myself. So not only when I first moved out here did I live in a car, but then now that I had an apartment, In these spaces, I actually had to put my room up for Airbnb. Oftentimes, I wasn't, although I'm teaching and helping young girls of color how to code, oftentimes I couldn't even put food on my own table. And I spent plenty of days 
not eating. I mean, I'm 130 pounds now, which at 5'9 makes me a pretty slim person. But two years ago, I was even 20 pounds lighter. And, you know, you put a lot of heart and a lot of passion, a lot of drive to have these social justice organizations run. But it's just like, how do you sustain yourself? So I was hit with a very hard reality that I could no longer do my passion because I wasn't able to sustain myself. So now I had to get a corporate job and climb this corporate ladder, something that I was very scared to do because I thought it would take away from my work in the community. So I had to go back into job searching and figure out what role would I be happy at? How can I break myself, break apart my resume and what I do in the community and pitch it to these startups where I can have a, not an entry role anymore. Because at this time, you know, I have 12 years experience. So I'm trying to break into a more managerial project manager role. And I was faced with a lot of setbacks where I, you know, probably 500 people applied for the position and it came down to two people, me and this other person from like Stanford. And I know I I killed my presentations. I worked very hard doing a, a lot, but because I had too much social justice background, they felt one, I didn't have a good culture fit or because I still had a bit urban as what they told me. I had a urban accent. I couldn't quite get the job because people wouldn't, they were afraid people wouldn't be able to understand what I was saying. So it's still set with a a setback through not being a good culture fit, which at these times, you know, they did break my spirit because people were personally attacking who I was. They, I went to an interview with curly hair and they were like, yeah, you know, next time can you wear your hair straight? Or if you're going to wear it curly, you know, your curls are beautiful, but can you push your hair, brush it back in a ponytail and in a bun so we don't see it? So I was personally being, I felt like dehumanized by just what I wanted to do and who I was as a person. And at this time, I would go home and I would record myself and do like some video blogs of my experiences. And, you know, I would be very vulnerable with myself and allow myself to cry. And I would tell myself like, cry now, but in the future, you're going to laugh at this, but cry now. And today you're being told you're not a good culture fit. And guess what? That's not a bad thing because you're never going to be a culture fit because you were born different. You were born to change the world. You have a different story. You're always going to be someone who has a bigger goal that's different than anyone else's. And that's not always a bad thing. So just because they are telling you that you don't fit today, you know, don't don't try to break yourself down to fit in this area. And, you know, I do look back on those videos. I look back on it actually last week and I do laugh at myself because, you know, I I was very vulnerable with myself and just allowing myself to kind of grow in these areas. So at this point, it sounds like you've been taking a risk your whole life. First, you had to you were the first one to go to college. Then you decided to, after you did get a job, you decided to move out to the West Coast, to Silicon Valley, in a car just with clothing and food. And uh, throughout your life, how do you view risk? Because I think risk is a very big topic that a lot of people, a lot of people are just afraid in general to take risks, to leave their jobs, put themselves out of their comfort zone. But you seem to be someone who embraces risk. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So 
So with that, I would start off by saying I'm a woman of God. And with that, I trust in God so much. And even with this interview, like I started this interview, I had a huge speech impediment. But today I'm here talking, talking clear, I'm talking. I'm very nervous, but I know this is bigger than me. And although I'm tired and although I am very shy and I don't want to do this, I know that this interview is bigger than me and it serves a higher purpose. Maybe someone who's in their home or in the car or who is a woman or a woman of color or wherever your struggle is, maybe you're hearing these words, my words, my story, and you're inspired. And this moves you in a bigger way. And I would say that's how I assess my risk, you know, just trusting in God and trusting in the purpose and the mission and and the impact that I want to bring in the world always allows me to take that next step. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, your story is definitely very inspiring. You got rejected, you know, over 80 times. And that led you towards your current position, which you are not just doing IT consulting work, you're also doing social justice work. Can you tell us a little bit more about ThoughtWorks and, you know, how you got that job and what that interview process was like? Yeah, so I met ThoughtWorks while I was at Black Girls Code, used ThoughtWorks in our partnership for having tech support. So ThoughtWorks is an IT consultant company that not only delivers software to companies all around the world, but they also provide tech support to social justice organizations such as Black Girls Code. So I met them and I had a crush on them for about four years before applying into the company. And I remember keeping in touch with a couple of people from ThoughtWorks and telling them about my job search and having someone tell me like, well, why don't you apply from here? Like, you know, your background is in tech. You have a whole bunch of analysis and a whole bunch of years of experience. And then you do a lot of work in social justice, like you would be a great fit for us. And I remember recalling, you know, like ThoughtWorks is the second hardest company in the world to get into. Forbes have some listed as second um, behind McKenzie. McKenzie on the top 25 companies, the toughest ones to get into. So I kind of had a, a bit of like imposter syndrome. Like I'm not good enough to apply to ThoughtWorks because that's where all the smart people work at. But nonetheless, I did apply to the position So I applied for a software delivery position working as a business analyst. And it took me about like 13 interviews over about like six months. And I was given a contract position. Now at this time, again, living in Silicon Valley, having a contract position without benefits really sucks. And it's kind of like a slap in your face as a person who has so much experience. And I also had about like three other job offers that came to me from different startups around the area that was well into six figures. And my paycheck at ThoughtWorks was not six figures, but I still went with ThoughtWorks. And why I decided to go to ThoughtWorks was that it was a safe place for me to grow. And it's not always about like job titles. It's not always about, you know, the money, because sometimes you can go to a You could get a job offer, but you know that job is going to suck every life out of you. But you want to go to a place where they're going to invest in you and they're going to allow you to grow and they're going to build skill sets 
So ThoughtWorks, not only could I join as a business analyst, but I could do QA, uh, quality assurance stuff. I could learn how to code with um, the programmers. I could learn tech security. I could work with social justice organizations. I could basically bring my authentic self and continue to grow, grow and excel. So I've been with the company for three years, and I'm very excited that I did decide to take that position because now not only am I... I'm a senior IT consultant, but I'm also working on the global team in their social justice department. So I'm able to do a lot of things in the community with them. That's yeah, amazing. And when we actually met, I met you when I just moved to San Francisco about two years ago, and you're heading to Ferguson. So tell us a little bit more about um, what you were kind of what you did there, because you were, you did some amazing activist work. And then how did that tie into with your job at ThoughtWorks? Yeah. So. At that time, I would say being a person of color in America, it was a very depressing time. You had Trayvon Martin, who was murdered. You had Jordan Davis, who was murdered. And by two white supremacists, people who completely got off and you didn't see where justice was ever served. That summer, you not only had the teenager, Mike Brown, who was shot and brutally killed by Officer Darren Wilson, But you also got to witness on video the suffocation of Eric Gardner by New York Police Department. And it was a time where it was like, so I'm living in a place where I have to fix world problems with tech all the time. But we're never addressing police brutality. We're never addressing the conditions of people who are criminalized for being poor. And as someone who, again, like I was arrested in high school time after time for being a poor person, to me, I just had enough. So I sent an email out and I sent a put up a Facebook post. And I was like, if you give a fuck about black people, if you care about poor people, if you're in tech, meet me at ThoughtWorks and let's create something. And I was very surprised to go to ThoughtWorks at 6 p.m. that night of the time when I called the meeting and be met with a hundred technologists who are not just black, who were white, who were Latino, who were Asian, who were Indian, who came from non-traditional backgrounds, who came from different places of the world and, you know, be met with genuine people who wanted to help. So out of this meeting, we all, you know, brainstorm resources on how can we help people on the ground. And one thing that we found was, you know, the media wasn't really bringing attention to what was going on in Ferguson. And we decided to create some hacks where people can have their Facebook posts noticed. So what we noticed was that like on Twitter, Mike Brown and Ferguson was trending, but on Facebook, it was not. It was not even on top like 100 things that was being hashtag. So what some Facebook people told us was to hack the algorithms was to put a post up and put congratulations, have five people put congratulations on in the bottom of the post, and it will flag this post to be seen by all your friends and as the number one thing on your timeline. So we we created like a, a spreadsheet of tips on how to basically use tech to hack and to use for communications and media. And I went to, I had a one-way ticket and I went to Ferguson to build with people on the ground. At this time, I was met with other thought workers that I didn't know that was there, but since ThoughtWorks is known for supporting tech support to social justice organizations and movements, you know, it, it wasn't that surprising to see a group of thought workers already there. So 
I was asked if I could join this group and stay there for three months was our task so that we can help build websites and other infrastructure for communications for people on the ground. But at this time, you know, when three months came, I didn't want to leave. And why I didn't want to leave was, well, what happens like when we leave, there's still communication needs, there's still tech needs. And this is a 21st century movement. You know, these activists, they need to know 21st century skill sets. So what I did was before I left, there was about like 15 days before I had to leave Ferguson to go back to a client site. And I decided in 10 days, if I could raise $10,000 to build a tech institute for activists in Ferguson, Missouri, that I would decide to stay. So I did just that. Um, I actually raised $15,000 in 10 days. And with that money, we created the Roy Clay Senior Tech Institute, named after Roy Clay Senior, who was the Black father, the Black godfather of Silicon Valley, who was born and raised in Ferguson. And when he was 16 years old, he was also a victim of police brutality where a police officer did try to kill him. But thankfully, he survived that and grew up not only to be the first person to attend, the first black person to to attend St. Louis University, but moved to California and was a part of the first team to create the first laptop for HP Hewler and Packet. Awesome. So it sounds like up to this point with ThoughtWorks and all your social justice works, you've been able to leverage your background as an organizer, being involved with the community, crowdsourcing things, using social media to bring people together and growth hack things. Something that you mentioned as an organizer related to tech security, um, is, is that something that you focus on in the pre-chat? You talked about that's something you focus on at the Tech Institute. Um, and it's something that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are talking about now with encrypted apps and software and things like that. Can you just talk a little bit more about that and why that's important? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO completely destroyed the Black Panther Party. And in 1972, when the internet was just being born and being made public in 1973, Huey P. Newton, the founder of the Black Panther Party, made a tech analysis and said, you know, you need to understand how to use this or you would be used by it. So very early on, if you're looking at history, there's analysis that's made about COINTELPRO, about surveillance, about security, about understanding how to be a programmer or at least understanding how to use tech tools and the internet. Again, when we're talking about Silicon Valley, diversity is a thing that's always being brought up and it's always being brought up either as a problem or a solution. So to me, people need to understand that diversity is not only a problem and it's not only a solution, but we need to look and really deconstruct how tech is impacting our communities. It's, you know, it's used around the world everywhere. And 90% of the internet content, the, the content that's on the internet is in English, but 5% of the world speak English as their primary language. So tech is colonizing people through language. It's oppressing people by taking and doing surveillance and doing, you know, doing just so much that people need to pay attention to. And this was an analysis that was made in 1970, in 1972 by Huey P. Newton. So just understanding tech security and security and what that means to the black community, to the poor community, to activists and radicals who have been rising up for centuries. You know, it, 
I mean, it's, it has a beautiful history. Yeah. And so like you just see things like Signal and Tor Browser and things like that are, are apps that people can use. And it sounds like, you know, the things that you're, you're working on have been helping out a lot of people. So related to, you know, what you want to do next, uh, what are some of your goals and uh, what are some of your plans? I know you talk a lot about, you know, AI is a big focus and you talked a lot about police brutality and things like that. Um, are you working on things, ways to change AI or anything related to like getting people to recognize the issues that are going on in different poor people's communities or what are you thinking about for the future? So in 2017, I've been working with Eileen Brown, who was the only woman that served as chairperson for the Black Panther Party. And together we created an organization called Hutton 2.0. And this organization is ran under the umbrella of the Live Free program, which is a program that's ran by Pastor Michael McBride. If you don't know who he is, research him. He's a very dope, uh, radical pastor, him and Reverend Barber. And we're having programs every second Saturday of every month. Um, So the second Saturday of every month, we're having free workshops that's going to be six to eight hours long happening at the West Oakland Youth Center. And we're going to be talking about tech. We're going to be talking about tour browsers. We're going to be talking about 3D printing, about virtual reality, about AI. We're going to be working with a lot of activists and bringing them and doing awareness workshops with them. Now, why it's important to have so many people and young people and activists and people of all ages just kind of understand what's going on in tech is, you know, I believe and there's a saying by uh, General Baker that every intellect needs to be a fighter and a fighter in the movement is what we're calling and every fighter needs to be an intellect. So we need very smart people, people who understand the tools of this society to really be at the forefront of the movement, of the struggle, of protecting people who are being marginalized. I mean, when you're talking about the internet, 50% of the people in the world aren't connected to the internet. And sadly, those 50% of the people are some of the poorest people in the world. So when we're creating apps and we're creating software needs, who are we really trying to impact if it's not the people who don't have so to me, it's always, you know, thinking about the impact that you're doing and trying to, to hold yourself accountable as a technologist. Not only am I working on those programs, I'm also working to revive Dr. Martin Luther's King New Poor People's Campaign is what we're calling it, which is a campaign that was, that was founded in 1968, where Dr. King wanted to unite the poor of cross all geographic, racial lines, gender lines, religions, and just have them working together. So those are two things that I'm doing on top of being a senior IT consultant at ThoughtWorks. Not to confuse what I do in the community with what I'm doing at ThoughtWorks, although I help ThoughtWorks in other spaces. You know, to me, it's all about using your platform to really push the impact that you want to bring out in the world. So a lot of people sometimes get confused and they're like, well, what do you do? Are you doing the poor people's campaign or are you working at ThoughtWorks? But you can do both. So you don't have to, you know, just because you broke in and just because you're diversifying tech, your work doesn't end there. Hold yourself accountable, holding your platform accountable and continue building out work. Yeah. And what advice do you have for someone who is probably listening and they're interested to learn more and maybe they're even considering getting a one-way ticket and moving out here or becoming more active in their community 
what advice would you have for someone who's just thinking about starting out on this journey? He wants to follow your path. Yeah. I mean, I would say my path was all about going on the web and being rotable and using, like, putting questions out there and seeing answers that people would have. So I would definitely suggest, even though I did my, I came out here like six years ago, I still think that's like a first good step for many people to go on the internet for more than just social media and to look up questions, look up the answers that you want to bring the solutions that you would want to work on. Go to meetup.com, go write a Facebook post, tell people what you're interested in and just be vulnerable with the world. And people, there's a lot of good people in the world who definitely wants to help not only you, but others. And make sure, you know, this is more about an individual story because my story is not about me. My story is about my impact in the community and the community's impact on me. Since I was younger, I'm talking about, you know, how my mom allowed me to to grow and to learn from people in the community that we didn't even know. So that's my whole my whole story. And on the Internet, you can meet people that you never could meet in person. So take advantage of the internet and connect with others. Yeah, that was awesome. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And this is where Arthur Rubin and I will ask you uh, several questions and try to provide answers that have resources, tactics, any strategies that you've used to get where you are today. Arthur, you want to take it away? Sure. So this, t- this question takes us back to the basics. And you already kind of touched on some of the um aspects of the question, but essentially if someone, imagine that you're uh, moving to a brand new city, you only have $100 and you don't know anyone, what would be some of the first things you would do to get yourself uh, started and get started in the vision? Jesus. Um, Let's see. Let's see. If I have $100, okay, they're really just throwing these questions out there. So they're not allowing us to prepare for them. (laughs) I would say... I mean, right now you have a lot of sharing economy tools. They may not be the greatest, but you can kind of stretch your money along these lines. So use an Airbnb and kind of, I really don't know how to answer this one. Yeah, Airbnb, <laughs> Lyft, Uber, yeah, um, things like that. Use that $100 for gas money if you had a car out here, if you had food and shelter. Yeah, to um, me, like, yeah. I came out here in California with my car so I could just see myself, you know, signing up for Lyft and having people, driving people around. And I mean, I used Airbnb to pay for my rent oftentimes when I didn't even have money for food. And then using $100 to probably meet with people and network in person to me, just meeting people in person is so important. And like I said, Half of my connections were made in a cafe. So going to these cafes and even if it's a hot chocolate because I don't drink, I don't drink coffee or I know this is really petty or really like low, but I've oftentimes when I didn't even have money for a hot chocolate, just got hot water and put lemon in my hot water and met with so many people that day. So, yeah, I would tell people just to do that. That's the hustle right there. And so this is the next question. We know you. We know you love music. You're learning to play guitar and can't wait to hear your next performance but let's go back to one of your darkest times when you were getting rejected or hurt through you know the way you were treated during an interview process what i know you made the videos to overcome that rejection but what piece of music or movie did you watch that helped you get over some of those situations 
So it was really funny. But when I first moved out here, I mean, just being a woman, you get rejected a lot. (laughs) That a lot of times it's not really promoted or talked about on podcasts, on radio or media. You have men always talking about their rejections. And I think that's probably why men can take rejections from jobs, you know, kind of more better than women. But we women, I don't feel have that many spaces to talk about our rejections. So it's really funny. This is not like the best movie, but the diary of a mad black woman. I would watch that a lot because it talks about basically, I know Tyler Perry is definitely not the, the best person to ever highlight, but the story is about like a woman of color who's like overcoming and what she's overcoming is not only like barriers and struggles, but it's also her anger and what to do with that anger. And when you are rejected, not only are you hurt, but you're angry with this other person. So it's like, how do you overcome that anger? And, you know, if you're a churchgoer, people say you're not supposed to get mad. And when you're with your friends, not people like people don't want to be around with a person who's angry or who's sad. So Oftentimes, you're left isolated to deal with this anger. So that's a movie that I watched. And I mean, I have a gospel playlist that I watch all the time. And to me, just something like Imagine by Kirk Franklin. Imagine me like, you know, just imagine me being beautiful. I don't look at myself like I'm beautiful. Imagine me being smart. I don't sometimes look at myself like I'm smart. Imagine me being free from what society is telling me. So being in these spaces where you have to be a culture fit and you know you're not a culture fit, it's just like, can you imagine that God is looking at you and is just like loving you for who you are and bringing you through? So to me, those are the type of things I listen to. That's awesome. And um, and the, the other question is, imagine there is a girl who is probably in high school. She might have a job. She's uh, struggling to either apply to college or just figure out what to do with herself and what a career path to pick. What is the one piece of advice that you would want her to know now that you've been through this journey, overcame obstacles, and uh, figured out your path in the world? I feel like at such a young age, we're, we're forced to pick a career path. And that really is different than how do you want to impact the world. So how I want to impact the world is bringing resources to people in the hood. But that's not my career. That's what I want to, how I want to impact. So to me, when I'm talking to youth, it's always like, regardless where you are, it doesn't matter your job title. What's important is about the impact you want to do. So maybe this girl wants to work with kids or maybe this girl wants to help teach English to like adults or work with senior citizens. Like regardless what she wants to do, that's her impact that she wants to do. And people get those two things confused. So it's just like, regardless if you're working at a McDonald's or if you're working at any place, know what you want to do, how you want to be an impact in this world. And don't silence that. Like people get so caught up in these corporate ladders and having to know like the biggest people in networking and having to, like I said, you know, people get caught up. It's like not what you know is who you know, but it's just like, no, but do you know yourself? Because once you know yourself and you know the impact you want to do, then you won't get confused. Because how many times was I pulled in a room as a young girl where people wanted to take advantage of me being naive and be like, oh, yeah, she has a lot of energy. I'm going to use her to, you know, deliver this agenda. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that because I know what I want to do, how I want to impact the world. And this is not who I am. This is not what I'm going to do. 
So again, a lot of people get caught up in trying to build their network, but I would say get to know yourself and how you want to impact job titles. We live in a very capitalistic world. We're always going to be working. So you're going to be working. Like, don't get that out of your mind. Like, you're going to be working. You're going to need to sustain yourself financially somehow. But that's not the same of how you're going to impact. Awesome. Awesome. As these young girls and and guys are listening to you and being inspired by you and thinking about where they want to go and who they want to be and what skill sets that they want to develop, are there any online resources that you want to highlight that people can go to to develop those skills? I mean, duh, breaking into startups. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. That's why. I mean, but for real, breaking into startups, not to like put y'all out there, but to put y'all out there, breaking into startups really highlights non-traditional people coming from backgrounds like geographic, gender, gender neutral, fluid, like all everything above and allows people to share their stories in a way that's not your very Ivy League way like, oh, well, what school did you go to? Where are you working now? And it's not a way where it's pulling like the bloodline out of you, where that's pretty much any culture you go into, whether it's D.C. and you're dealing with politics or you're in Silicon Valley and you're dealing with like techies. It's still the very same culture that's very toxic. And I always say breaking into startups is a very like friendly, like genuine place to build with. So it's a place that I've not only recommended my sister to go and to build with people there. My mother, who is a woman who's over the age of 50, who's learning how to get back on her feet after being laid off. She's learning how to even put like Google Calendar and, you know, just use different tech tools. And she's learning that with people in the start breaking into startups. So to me, it's it's something that's for every age from any background and that's honestly the first place i would start i like that appreciate that and then for our listeners what's the best way they could reach you i know you've written a lot so what are some of the ways people could kind of read more about your writing and kind of the organization you're involved with as well as what's your twitter handle and all that okay so i'm going to be real personal and giving my phone number i don't accept phone calls though but I do receive all my text messages. And if you listen to my voicemail, it would be like, bro, I'm not listening to this voicemail. Send me a text. So my phone number is 215-307-5107. My personal email is i.l.bobe at gmail.com. My Twitter is Idaline Bobe, just as is. Facebook, you could find me, but I would say the best way to contact me is through text messaging because everything else is filled with a whole bunch of spam. But don't, you know, if you're going to reach out, I mean, come from a place of love. That's all I ask. Not come from a place of like trying to like just use and abuse, um, which we know so many people can do that in these types of industries. But I'm a person that if I don't know the answer, I know someone that can know the answer. And I'm just connecting people. So maybe I won't be the best person. Maybe I actually won't be the best person to connect with, but I may know someone that you can connect with. So feel free to hit me up anytime. I think you're the first person who actually shared their phone number. So thank you so much for doing that. And to our listeners, if you are going to text Edeline, make sure you do your research. Make sure you're not just asking her questions that you can just find on Google. And uh, do take advantage of this. Uh, She's amazing. 
Yeah, yeah. So thanks again for taking the time to speak with us. This was special, and uh, we look forward to seeing uh, what you build in the future. Yeah. Definitely. Thanks, thank Shadeline. Thank thanks. you. Thank you all. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.